Matthew chapter 28. The Lord Jesus has died for the sins of the world on the cross to provide the only way for sinners to be justified before God. There's nothing else that can make you right before God except trusting in what Jesus has done for you as he has died in your place, paid the price for your sin, incurred the wrath of God the Father on his own person. Peter gives us detailed information of what happened um, during the three days Jesus was placed in the tomb. First uh, Peter three nineteen through 20 tells us that Jesus descended to Hades. He preached to the spirits in prison, the disobedient men and women prior to the flood. He preached to them, and I'm sure he preached to them the fulfillment of the seed of the woman that was given as a promise to Adam. They did not believe that. Paul also gives us further details in Ephesians um, 4, 8 through 10, telling us that Jesus... He ascended up on high, but first he descended to the lowest parts of the earth and he led captivity captive and he scooped up all those who died in faith and he took them to heaven, which is the third heaven where God dwells, which is now paradise. So um, Peter and Paul give us a clear understanding what took place during these three days. Um, Chapter 28, verse 1 through 8, we have the announcement of Jesus that he had risen from the dead. The parallel passages you're going to have in this last chapter is Luke 16, Mark 24, and John chapter 20. And the first visitors to the tomb is given to us in verse 1, the day of the resurrection. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mark says when the Sabbath was passed. In Mark 16, 1, Luke says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, meaning sunrise, uh, Luke 24, 1. And John says, Now on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, in John 20, verse 1. All the Gospels affirm that it was the first day of the week. Remember, the Hebrew day starts evening and morning, different than the way we calculate, okay? We've gone through all that. Um, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Mary Magdalene is mentioned um, uh, by Mark 16.1 and John 21. So she was the first to the tomb. The other Mary, uh, mother of James the Less or Salome perhaps, the mother uh, of James and John. Um, two of them. Now you have different accounts and you have to go through all of them. Because they all give you a different perspective. The two first came. The other ones were on their way. The angel first appears to the two. First to Mary specifically. And then to others. So you have to put them all together. But it was uh, um, a con continuous witness of the resurrection. That was to be given as a message to the disciples as we'll see. In verse 2 through 4 the angel sent... Um, sent to the tomb is given to us the supernatural work notice in verse 2 of God was still at work behind these events these are not natural events even as the ones on the cross it says and behold there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven so notice the word behold it's an exclamatory or exclamation of 
something taking place all of a sudden with the idea of being a surprise. In other words, they didn't expect it. Um, the great earthquake, notice, was the result of the angel. Not the angel of the Lord, but an angel. Big difference. Now, he descended from heaven like the one at the cross. The earthquake was divine. Here, this earthquake was due to his descending, okay? The angel prepares the way for the women to see the empty tomb. He did not remove the stone to let Jesus out. He was already risen, but to let the ladies in. And, it, and he came and he rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. The stone, huge stone. Some of you were in Israel with us. We went to the tomb there, Gordon's Calvary. Um, and they rolled this stone, which is probably about a foot, 13, 14 inches wide, probably about five to six feet tall. And you roll it on this runner that covers the tomb. Uh, it takes many men to move that thing. Here the angel just moves it. He sits on it. Um, as a witness, waiting for the women. And the women were worried, remember Mark 16, 3 tells, they were worried their conversation on the way was, who's going to move the stone? <laughs> Isn't it just like us? We always worry about things that are never going to happen. Um, but at least we worry. Um, God is in control. Luke says, they found the stone rolled away, went in and and did not find the body of Jesus, but they saw the two men standing by them in shining garments, Luke 24, 2-4. And then the other gospel says that they were sitting one at the head and one at the foot, and the napkin was placed out to a distance all on its own to demonstrate, but the, it, the wrappings were intact to demonstrate that no one stole the body. It, was, it didn't come through. He just, he had risen from the dead. John confirms this by saying that the stone had been taken away in John 20, verse 1. Um, the distinctions is a greater evidence that there was no collusion. I think by now we understand what the word collusion is with all the things that go on today in, regarding our president, okay, and Russia. So in other words, they didn't get together and contrive this thing. They each gave their eyewitness account. And when you put all the pieces together, you get a full picture. Now, the majestic appearance of the angel, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Um, these are angelic beings, they're spirit beings. But when they appear, they appear in the form of a male um, human. We see this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Um, and if they don't take a body, then there's still that splendor, that majestic um, vision of them. In verse 4, the response of the soldiers um, at the tomb is given to us. He says, and the guards uh, shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The soldiers quaked literally for fear at the sight of this angel. Remember, they're guarding the tomb, okay? Um, the, the Jews didn't want to take any chance uh, uh, for any idea that he might have really been risen from the dead. And so they became as dead men. They probably fainted, <laughs> passed out. 
In verse 5 through 8, the words of the angel to the women now. Verse 5, the comfort of the angel says, But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. This was an imperative command, present middle voice, literally, you stop being afraid individually. <laughs> the middle voice, always the individual, has to act on it. The actual fact that Jesus was crucified, but he's alive now. The angel declared the good news. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. In fact, Luke 24 said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? Then they entered the tomb and they saw it empty and the linen cloths again laying intact as John 20 verse 7 and um, other portions also of the Gospels. Now notice the angel gave the women instructions. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The word angel, angelon, literally means messenger. And that's what they are. They are messengers of God to do God's bidding and to carry out his orders. He would keep his appointment and go before them, the eleven, to Galilee. They would see him as he told them. He told them this before it all happened. They were waiting for the kingdom to be established. They were waiting to rule when, in fact, he was going to be crucified and put in the tomb. Again, the disciples had the different Jewish mindset. Verse 8, the women were obedient to the angel, so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to bring his disciples' word. Um, once again, the uh, privilege of, uh, of the message of the resurrection was through the women, not the men. The disciples were not there. They abandoned Jesus completely. John is the only one at the cross. The women hung in there, and they're the first to the tomb. Uh, the mixed emotions here of fear and great joy is no contradiction but rather a reality. There are some events in life where we cannot believe it, we're fearful, and then all of a sudden the joy is mixed in, and, and, and there's no contradiction here at all. They ran to tell the disciples the further account and all of that. You can find in John chapter 20 and 21, the whole event of the, up in Galilee. Now, when you come to verse 9 and 10, you have the appearance of Jesus now to the women. Now they receive the message from the angel. They're going to be on their way. Um, the unexpected um, took place here as they were going to tell the disciples. Verse 9 says, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. You can just imagine the, the, the shock as well as the elation at the same time. Their obedience, notice, led them to greater privilege. If they wouldn't obey to go tell the disciples, they would have been out of the route, right? 
Not that Jesus couldn't find them, but I'm saying when we obey the Lord to do what doesn't make any sense, as long as he's directed and guiding us, that leads us to greater clarity and greater um, privilege. It's very, very important. The word beholder, once again, an imperative command, errors middle voice, to obey by each individual. And Jesus appears to the women and greets them by the word rejoice, to be glad, or greetings. I mean, here they're freaking now. They're trying to believe what he said, and they don't know what's going on. It's the third day, and all of a sudden, here he is, and all he says, hey, hi, how you guys doing? <laughs> the response of the women, so they came, and they held him by the feet, and they worshipped him. Now, Jesus never allowed public worship of him prior to his death, ever except for when he entered Jerusalem on the cold, the full of a donkey. The disciples never bowed down and worshipped him. The, the women never did that also. All of a sudden, this is now a different time. After the resurrection, the word they held means that Jesus had held Jesus by the feet, not to secure him from leaving, but rather to hold fast in admiration and adoration of him. Mary thought Jesus was the gardener, if you remember, on the Gospel of John. And, um, and he asked him, where have you laid the body of Jesus, my Lord? I will carry him out of here. And Jesus says, Mary. <laughs> and she understood Rabboni. And then he told her to go um, not to cling to him because he had not yet ascended. To the Father in John 20, verse 12 through 17. The word there, cling, though, is different than the one that's here. Here they were just for worship. Mary was clinging to him, and he had not ascended to the Father. Because remember, he descended first, then he ascended up on high to leave captivity captive, right? All right? So there was an ascension before he left on the, uh, on the 40th day, Okay? And then there was 10 days for the day of Pentecost. Now, the word worship, as we said this morning, proskoneo, it means to prostrate oneself before a superior in obeisance. And again, they never did this before the resurrection. Now, it's a whole different time. Matthew can be all summed up, this entire gospel, in the fact that everything about Jesus is in fulfillment of Scripture. Everything in fulfillment of scriptures completely. That's one of his uh, main phrases. This was done in fulfillment of. Um, it has been said that there is no ascension in Matthew because the Messiah reigns forever on the earth in the hearts of his people. Um, we have it in John and other places we have in the book of Acts. Now, the words of Jesus in verse 10 says, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Um, virtually um, the same words of the angel back in verse 7. Um, do not be afraid, an imperative command in the present middle voice again, for each to obey. And this is another imperative command in the present active to tell the disciples to go to Galilee and there they would see him. 
All of this they had been told before the death. He told them when they were in Galilee. But again, you understand as a parent, how many times have you told your child to take out the trash to make his bed or to clean his bathroom or pick up his clothes? You will have to tell them to the day they leave your home. All right? How many times do you tell them to shut off the lights? They will learn when they pay the light bill. That's when they learn. Okay? It's no surprise, all these things. Jesus called his disciples brother, notice that. Literally born of the same womb. They're in the same family. We are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. When you get to verse 11 to 15, the soldiers now reported the empty tomb. Um, the passage is unique of Matthew. The other gospels don't have it. The truth was brought, uh, was bought off by, with money here in verse 11 and 13. In verse 11, at the same time the women were going to the disciples, the soldiers went and told the priests about the condition and what had taken place in the tomb. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened in verse 11. The word guard uh, was used for Roman guards. This is the word. Some say these were temple guards. Not so. If so, why would they need to be protected from Pilate, as we'll see as we move on? Okay? Remember, they came to Pilate, says, you have guards, make it as secure as you can. And they went to make it secure, but the very fact that they are responsible to Pilate means that they were Roman guards altogether. And if they failed in their vigilance at a Roman post, they would have to pay with their own lives. We see this in the book of Acts as the men were not found in their prison cells and they put them to death. Now, They came to the priest and told him what had taken place. Again, these are all supernatural things. These are non-believers. <clears throat> these are salty Roman soldiers who have seen battle. They know um, the viciousness of man, the gruesomeness. And yet, um, when the angel came there, they freaked out. Um, the settled arrangement was solidified for the transaction in verse 12. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They couldn't stop the resurrection. They couldn't hide the resurrection. So they have to corrupt the resurrection. This was uh, a mutual agreement between the soldiers and the priests here. <clears throat> the word large there means uh, sufficiently enough. In other words, a large sum of money had been offered to them. The false report invented is saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole them away while we slept. Well, that would be execution for them. They agreed to all 
this having witnessed the earthquake, the rolling away of the stone, and that they had gone unconscious in their fear. But now once it's over, you've got the pressure, you've got the fear, and sometimes people make wrong decisions based on the surroundings and the conditions. Fake news and fabricated lies are nothing new at all. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil in 1 Timothy 6.10. For money, um, people destroy their lives. Young women uh, sacrifice their virtue and their morals and their character. Or a man for some money would compromise his ethics, his character, his whatever it may be. And um, money does funny things to people. In verse 14 through 15... You have the lie was uh, secured uh, by political protection here. Uh, the soldiers were guaranteed by the priests that they would intervene on their behalf in verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. If they were temple police once again, why would the priests have to intervene for them? The priests ran the temple. They did not intervene there. That would bring more trouble to Pilate and to Roman procurators than they wanted because of the Jewish states and the things that were going on. The soldiers, notice, finalized this guarantee to hold the lie together, to secure it. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The corrupt story was accepted by many in the days of Matthew to the very time that he wrote this gospel, 62, 63, 64, somewhere like that. Uh, Eusebius tells us that this is a fact and was still believed by many. It is amazing the amount of um, of false truth that people believe about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They would rather try to explain it in their own logical, rational way because they dismiss the supernatural altogether. If you do not believe in the supernatural of God intervening in this world and doing the things that he says he does, then you've got nothing but just... You have to edit the Bible completely, and what you're left is with absolutely nothing. Because it's a record of God's divine activity in the midst of the world of sinners. The Great Commission comes in verse 16 through 20. If you weren't here this morning, I would encourage you, you get it. We went in depth on it. Um, This passage, once again, is unique of Matthew. It's not um, found in this very way, but there are five commissions of the Great Commission. Um, Here in Matthew, the last chapter 16 of Luke and the 24 of Luke, 16 of Mark, 24 of Luke, 
and then John chapter 20, and then in Acts chapter 1. So you really have five great commissions recorded. Um, again, as I said this morning, it's not the great suggestion, but commission. Now, from 16 to 17, the 11 men Jesus chose for the great commission are pointed out. Um, the disciples were obedient to the plan of Jesus. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. Um, Judas Iscariot, having betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, recorded back in chapter 26, verse 15, 47, and also chapter 27, verse 3. Um, he has hung himself by this time. Uh, he's gone to his own place. Uh, the word disciples, we said this morning, means a student, a, a, a learner. And this is what you do. But it cannot happen until you're born again. Once you're born again, now you begin to study the Word of God. That's why we focus on teaching the Word of God. We don't try to entertain you. We don't try to study secular books or commentaries on what the Bible says. We go right to the manuscript. You want first-hand information? Get into the Bible. Don't read about commentaries about the Bible. Nothing wrong with the commentaries, but first you spend time with the truth, studying it over and over again. Line upon line, precept upon precept, the natural divisions, key phrases, all the questions, what, who, where, how, all of that. So that now when you read a commentary, you can criticize a commentary. You can say, no, circle, slash, wrong. Once you spend time with the real text, you can make now criticism and judgment on the commentary that is merely a human attempt to tell you what the Bible says. Very, very important. And so the twelve had been sent out to preach the gospel to the Jews, as you know, in Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus delegated to them that limited authority for that time to preach, to pray for people, to be healed, to cast out demons. And uh, remember that Judas Iscariot was one of the ones who went out, okay? Um, so many times Calvinists have a difficult time saying, well, no, uh, God would never do that. Well, he did. He, he, he walked away from God. He used them. He chose him, right? Are you saying that God predestined Judas Iscariot to walk away, to betray him? If he did, then God's responsible for Judas Iscariot's sin. But that isn't the case. The case is that God knew what Judas Iscariot would do, so God told us what he would do before he did it. So when he did it, you know, God knows the end from the beginning. But God doesn't predestine or force a person to do neither good or evil. Otherwise, God would have to reward himself or judge himself. Okay? He allows man to have a free moral agency of decision. And every man, every woman is responsible for everything they do, everything they say. Believer or unbeliever. Very clear. Now, the 11 were different as night and day. If you go through the list, we don't have time tonight. 
But um, you have Peter, the impulsive man who, you know, is very proudful and uh, he's the first one to step out. You have Matthew, the tax collector. You have Doubting Thomas. You have Simon the Zealot who would kill anybody who would try to uh, say anything against Israel or try to subjugate Israel. Uh, Simeon and Zealot and, and, uh, and Matthew were arch enemies. And yet, they're in the group of disciples. See, once Jesus saves you, um, then you're able to live with your enemies who are also born again side by side because you know that everything is passed away. Everything becomes new, right? And even those who have not come to Christ, you can live at peace with them because now you have been transformed. You are different. You have the greater light. You have the greater accountability and responsibility to God. And so you know that we have to do everything as much as impossible in us to live peaceable with all men. Sometimes it's not possible, but we're to do all that we can. Um, the Galilee was to the north of Israel. Uh, you have um, um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria in the middle, and then Galilee up to the north. Beautiful area, especially in the spring and then the word Galilee means circuit and it was divided to the upper Galilee and the lower Galilee and um, um, the ministry of Jesus was prophetic and we covered that in Matthew 4, 14 through 16, the, um, the Galilee of the Gentiles that were in darkness and the majority of the, um, the ministry of Jesus, about 75% was um, uh, worked out there in the Galilee. Now, the particular mountain is not named, as we said this morning, um, but Jesus had appointed a certain mountain. Uh, back in chapter 26, 32, here we have the um, recollection of it. It could have been any of the mountains that they were around. It could have been the Sermon on the Mount. could have been another one. We, we don't know. But they knew which one, and they knew where, and they were to go there, and they did. In verse 17, the response of the disciples to Jesus is interesting. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They saw Jesus, they worshipped, proskuneo, the same word as the women. It means to kiss the hand, to prostrate oneself to the ground in obeisance. It appears 13 times in Matthew, it's key. Again, this was never done prior to the resurrection, but here we have it. Uh, the word in the Old Testament are similar to it, giving the same connotation of prostrating oneself. You see it in Moses, Mount Sinai. You see it through Ezekiel and, and many, many others before superiors. Um, worship is the adoration of God and His holiness it's an attitude of heart, not just a mechanical thing you do. Recognizing one's own unworthiness before the person. Uh, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 6, says, Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he, this is the words of Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died. And he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. In other words, Isaiah was saying, When I see God now, now I see my own filthiness and unworthiness. 
compared to the holiness of God. And that's always a measure, ladies and gentlemen. As long as you and I compare ourselves to someone else, we're not going to look that bad because I'm always going to pick someone that I believe is worse than me. I'm not stupid. So this way I can look better. But when you compare yourself to God, you're a loser every time. But that's good. We need to acknowledge that we're losers. Without the Lord, we are 100% losers. With the Lord, we become winners. We become the wisest in the entire earth as we come to recognize our true nature, the rebelliousness, the wickedness of the heart, our own self-will, and that the only hope we have is to cast ourselves upon that stone. Lest the stone fall upon us and we be grind to powder. Wow. Worship is an attitude towards God from the heart due to God's word and his Holy Spirit. Before we were born again, this would never happen. Now, you can be religious. There are many people who are very, very religious. I mean, they are uh, devoted. They get up and they go to church every early morning. They'll go to a temple or wherever it is they go. Um, but they, 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 they still act and do sinful things. So they have their religious life and their secular life. Um, and that's the way the world is. Um, when you're born again, all of a sudden now, you've already been illuminated about your sinfulness and your need of repentance. And as you ask Christ to forgive you, now you're a new creature. Now you have the mind of Christ, the spirit of Christ. You have the word of God. And as you begin to study and to read and to pray and to ask God to fill you and to direct you, you understand the worthiness of Jesus to be worshipped and song and hymn because you're getting objective truth. You find this um, both in Ephesians and Colossians, Colossians 3 and Ephesians uh, 3 also. Songs and hymns, spiritually, making songs in your heart unto the Lord by the word and the spirit of God. The expression there in contrast is, but some doubted, meaning they wavered. Now we know that Thomas is usually marked with doubting Thomas. But when we did our character study, if you remember, um, really Thomas was not the biggest doubter. Um, when Jesus uh, said that um, Lazarus was, uh, was sleeping, was dead, not sleeping, um, and that he said that it wasn't safe to go to Jerusalem, Thomas is the only one who said, well, let's go so we die with him. The other 11 didn't want to go. <laughs> so, um, but he's got tagged with this and um, but he wasn't the only one. There were others in um, Matthew fourteen thirty one, Mark sixteen fourteen, Luke twenty four thirty six through forty three, and in chapter twenty of John, it also says that other the disciples, Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and hard heart. Okay, so in verse eighteen, 
the delegated authority to the disciples for the Great Commission is given here. The authority at this point was to the disciples, not just anyone. He's focusing upon them. And Jesus came and spoke to them. Many times we read, and he stood in the midst of them. He's not in the midst. He is at a distance, and he comes towards them. And after that, he was seen by over 500, Paul says. Now, some believe that um, this account of Acts 15.3, and some of them had were still alive, but many had died, that maybe these 500 and others were at this present time. But as I said this morning, there's nothing to lead to that conclusion from the scriptures. Matthew doesn't point it out, Mark, Luke, nor John. It happened at some point somewhere. We don't know where. So whenever we are not sure from the scriptures, it's best to leave it alone and not be dogmatic about it. When we have evidence from the scripture, then we stand. It doesn't matter. It did happen. Where? The time? It's impossible to tell. And so when the scriptures are silent, we want to remain silent. Um, now, this event at Galilee here is believed to be towards the end of the 40 days that Jesus was ministering to the disciples about the kingdom of God, remember, the kingdom of heaven. Um, the full extent of the authority that was given by Jesus is given to us there, saying all authority has been given to me. So it's vested authority in the chain of command, the Father to the Son, and from the Son to the disciples or apostles here. All means absolute, whole, everything, complete, nothing lacking. Um, this reminds us of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 as the Son of God coming back in glory and in power uh, to set up the kingdom. Jesus spoke about it already in Matthew twenty-four thirty. also. And the word authority, exousia, means the permission, the position, the right to act. It's not talking about the ability or power to do it, but the right and position of authority. Very, very important. And so, um, this is the indicative passive, uh, a fact, not something um, mystical, nothing that's um, hypothetical, but a fact. This is the all-encompassing and supreme authority that Jesus had prior to the incarnation. The Father glorified him with the glory that he had before the world was, as Jesus prayed in the um, uh, John 17, which is really the Lord's Prayer. What is usually called the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, is not really the Lord's Prayer because that is a model prayer for us as believers to know what our prayer should contain. For Jesus could have never prayed for forgiveness of sin. He had no sin. The Lord's Prayer is found in John 17 as Jesus goes before the Father. Now, the authority was given by the Father. 32 times Jesus declares his Father sent him in the Gospel of John. 18 times Jesus says the Father gave me. And 12 times given me. 
Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. In other words, the all-encompassing authority of Jesus prior to the incarnation was not limited. Once the incarnation came to play, now he divested himself of his glory, never of his deity. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So Jesus, as he took on the incarnation, he never did or performed anything as God in the wilderness temptation by Satan. Satan says, since you're the son of God, usually the translation is if, but it's not doubting, it's affirming. The Greek word is affirming. Since you're the son of God. Satan wanted Jesus to turn the stones into bread by his divine power. He could have done it. He says, man should not live by bread alone. In other words, everything Jesus did in the wilderness and everything after, he did it as the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. One exactly like the first Adam. First Adam chose to fail, the last Adam would not fail. He depended on the Father for the wisdom, the direction, the authority, the power, and did only those things that the Father told him to do. He would get up early and pray to see what God the Father would tell him to do. So that you and I have an example that we cannot excuse ourselves, we cannot blame others for all that God has called you and I to be as Christians and being husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and grandparents and great-grandparents and whatever may follow and the difficulty and the good time, we are able to be victorious in spite of the difficulties, the tragedies, the disappointments, if we die to self and depend on the Lord so that we are really busted, we have no excuse. And so it's dying to self. Romans 6, 6 says we have been crucified, past tense. And then in verse 11 it says we must crucify the old man daily. See, there's a problem. You and I still have a sin nature. I have a divine nature. I have a sin nature. And if I reckon the old man dead, I walk in the newness of life, in the spirit. But if I don't reckon the old man dead, then I yield to the old man, then I don't walk in the spirit. So it's A or B, and if I don't walk in A, in the spirit, I will walk in B, in the flesh. There's no third option. It's one or the other. And so... Um, Jesus destroyed him with the power of death, Satan, in Hebrews 2.14. He tasted death for every man. He descended to the lowest part in 1 Peter 3.19 and uh, preached to those in prison, as we said at the opening. He um, took them to heaven. He spoiled principalities and powers. Colossians 2.15 says they couldn't stop him from taking those who died in faith and taking them to heaven. Jesus is victorious over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. Praise be God to Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
It's through him that we have the victory. The minute you die, if you're a Christian, you're instantly present before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Paul told the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Instantly present. And so in verse 18, still the authority was all encompassing in heaven and in earth. The sphere of heaven is perfection and the dominion of God where he, his will reigns supremely. There are no rivals. The sphere of the earth is in perfection in the domain of Satan on the earth. But that authority has been broken by Jesus already through the death and resurrection. He paid the price for sin. He destroyed the power of sin and death. And through the preaching of the gospel, people can be set free. As 2 Timothy 2.26 says, they no longer have to be held captive to do the will of Satan. You and I, as moral as we might have been or as evil as we might have been, we were slaves to Satan, held captive to do his will. We were set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ to see ourselves as we really are in need of Christ and forgiveness of sins. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and earth and under the earth, Philippians 2.10 says. Right now, it's not perfection. But people have a freedom now to accept or reject. The power has been broken. When you get to verse 19 and 20, the task of the Great Commission is given to us. The command of Jesus was clear. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. The word go is a participle along with baptizing and teaching. All three imply action and could be translated as you go, when you go, in your going. In other words, there was never any doubt of going. Jesus said to his disciples, and you shall be my witnesses, Acts 1.8. Terry and Jerusalem to you being due with power from on high. The main verb <clears throat> is make disciples. And it's followed by the two participles indicating the process of baptizing and teaching. This is an imperative command to make disciples, students, learners through the proclamation of the gospel. Having been dead in trespasses and sins, now they're alive in Christ Jesus. The interest of God is not intellectual decisions for public display, but rather heart transformation, a reality. The making of disciples is no longer limited to Israel. All nations, ethnos, meaning tribes, nation, group of people, because Jesus died for the entire world, John 3, 16. 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. That includes everybody. Calvinists teach that Jesus died only for the elect, for those that, will, that are predestined, and that it's an insult to the blood and sacrifice of Christ to say that he died for those who will not be saved. I don't know where the rationale is. Jesus paid the price for the sins of the whole world. Read John 3.16. Don't let them switch the word world for elect. The world is the world. It's a very dishonest exposition that they do. Okay? It's really blasphemous. 
and they do it all the time. Again, the method by preaching faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen, And the command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations is by the process of public right. First, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The practice of baptism um, is after becoming a Christian. It means baptismal. It means to submerge, not sprinkle. Um, the participle is a present active tense. It's to be going on as you are, people are being saved, then you baptize them afterwards. John the Baptist was uh, uh, submerging people in the Jordan. Um, this included Jesus in John one twenty eight and Matthew three thirteen through 17. When Jesus descended the water, when he came up, the Holy Spirit descended upon him coming out of the water. Um, by the way, Jesus never baptized anybody in water. His disciples did the baptizing. John 4, 1 and 2 tells us that. The reason being is because Jesus didn't want to confuse the ones who can baptize in water, anybody, and the only one who baptized in the Holy Spirit, him. Big distinction. Uh, symbolically, Romans 6, 3 through 4, we take you in waters, the death and burial of Jesus Christ coming up in the new man for the newness of walk. It's a public confession of what already has happened in your heart. Water does not forgive any sin. Water does not really make you born again, doesn't complete salvation. It's a public confession that you are born again. It's a right. It doesn't add. It doesn't complete. Yet we do it as a command of obedience, okay? But it forgives no sin. Again, First Peter 3, 20 and 21 makes that very clear. It does not forgive or put away any sin of the flesh, but an answer to a good conscience. You're complete in Christ Jesus, and him dwells the sum total of deity, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. To the thief on the cross, he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine Jesus telling the centurion, listen, I forgot about it. Can you go down and dunk him and bring him up here? I just promised him paradise. Because paradise was down in Hades or Sheol. Jesus descended, preached to those who rejected him prior to the flood and others. Then he took those who died in faith and he scooped them up and took them to heaven. Transferring paradise from the bosom of Abraham to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12. So the men that we died were instantly present with the Lord, the third heaven and paradise. Now, if baptismal of water is essential for salvation, then Paul spoke blasphemous words. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.17. We should water baptize, but it's not going to forgive your sin. doesn't really make you born again. It's an act of obedience, a public confession. The baptismal formula is not always the same. Matthew is the only one that gives us this one, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a single name that is referred here to. The Trinity, one God, three persons. The book of Acts has many different forms in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of the Lord Christ, um, different forms. But here you have the Trinitarian formula. 
The command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations is by the process of instruction too. Notice teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Amen. So the ministry responsibility of the church is to teach God's word to the saints. This is the failure of so many pastors and so many churches today. They do not teach the word of God. This is one of the major reasons why our nation is so corrupt, so perverted, and so anti-Christ and anti-Christianity today. And we've given our nation over to the academics, which are just Marxists and socialists indoctrinating all the young people. There's no more objective truth. There's no more ethics. There's no more morals. When we passed the year 2000, we moved into an amoral society. All subjectivism, no objective truth. You're not supposed to judge anybody. It's a nanny state. They protect you. Don't defend yourself. Go hide. Really? We're building a nation of cowards. Of our young men and young ladies. Ready for takeover through the Antichrist. It's a false assurance of false security. But we know the Bible says it's going to happen worldwide. Now, the ministry responsible to the church again to teach the word of God. Teaching, it means to discourse, to instruct. A teacher and a pastor teacher are two different gifts. The teacher teaches, but he's not necessarily a pastor but if you're a pastor, you have to have the gift of pastor-teacher because as a pastor, you have to feed the flock of God. You'll be a teacher. But if you're just a teacher, you don't have to have the gift of pastor. It's two different gifts in Ephesians. And so the privilege is to evangelize the world through the gospel. But the responsibility and the purpose of the church is to feed the flock of God. Peter picks it up in 1 Peter 5, feed the flock of God. Okay. Over and over again, Jesus told Peter, you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Notice it says to observe, to observe carefully, to obey, to guard it. Uh, in the present tense, um, all things, not just the things that we think we should, not what we want. You cannot be selective in the word of God as Genesis to Revelation and the promise for fulfillment of the Great Commission, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Lo, I'm with you always. Here's the surprise, the suddenness of it, thinking that it's so overwhelming. He says, I'm going to do it through you if you depend upon me, over and over again. It's an imperative voice here again. The person uh, speaking is the one who's going to be doing it through these disciples. So the complete action is performed by Jesus Christ. The extent of the promise is always being with us to the end of the age. It's talking about the end of the church age, um, his faithfulness, and he affirms everything he has given here in the Great Commission by Amen. So be it. What you've heard and what I declare, 
You can count on it. It's so. And so what an amazing gospel that uh, we've been able to study through with Matthew. 28 chapters addressed to the Jew. Passages that are found in no other gospel. Passages that are just so incredibly illuminating. And when you put all the gospels together, you get an incredible picture of God's love and his grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We thank you for just tonight. We pray for those that are here and those over the internet and on the radio. That you speak to their hearts. If you're out there, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior somewhere in the world or the internet or here. You've heard the good news. Jesus died for you, rose from the dead. He's able to forgive you of your sins. If you call upon his name, you shall be saved, the book of Romans says. So it's a prayer of repentance. If you don't know Jesus, you want to be born again, you want to repent of your sins, this is a simple prayer. Your prayer to him, not to us. And he's going to forgive you of your sins and make you a child of God right now by grace through faith. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.